All right, so we're back. This is part three of what I guess we're uh, now referring to as a series trying to humanize war, humanizing war, I think has been in some of the titles. Uh, so it's me, Preston Stewart, and John Wagner jumping on again. John, thanks, buddy. Yep, thanks for having me. So we're going to talk more today, probably a five, six, seven-month stretch in the middle of a deployment to Afghanistan, 2010, 2011. And the goal of what we've been doing here for a couple episodes and, and hope to carry forward. I think there's, I think we'll, there's probably a good one to be done after this, but trying to just tell a different side of the conflict that went on for 20 years on or just, well, it'll end up being 20 years, you know, not the, the stuff you might see movies about or, or TV shows, but just maybe the, what could be really, really boring life, like on a strong point, but is actually really funny. The stuff we laugh about when we're together. But it is August 25th, 2021, and we're in the middle of, have they labeled this? I feel like people that aren't happy with it call it with withdrawal from Afghanistan and people that are more on board call it an evacuation. So I don't know which word sticks yet. Right. Yeah. I'm not sure if there's an official term. But um, I think we'll come back to that. We're still kind of in the weeds so we're not really going to spend a lot of time today talking about that, but we'll, we'll definitely hit on it again. But it is worth mentioning we had to postpone this a couple of nights because John was busy celebrating. Um, yeah, celebrating a, a little bit of positive there. So, John, you want to go into that a little bit? Yeah, I think I mentioned uh, a couple episodes ago, I, I've been my best interpreter and we always called them Terps. Um, from our first deployment, we always called him Lucky. Uh, but his, his name is Faradun. I've been working with him for about eight years to try to get him his special immigrant visa to get out of Afghanistan, come to the States. And, uh, you know, with all this turmoil, you know, he was trying to get to the airport. Um, really interesting thing. He, he linked up with some of the other Terps that were in contact with this group of Marines uh, in the States. And they had a connection with the Marines on the ground who were able to coordinate this uh, drop-off or this this meeting where the, the Terps were able to get into the airport, which was a, a huge challenge because there's thousands of people trying to get to the airport right now. And uh, this group of Terps got in and Faradun was able to get through whatever screening happens and he got on a flight out of Afghanistan. So he's in um, Qatar now continuing his SIV processing. Um, but I, I'm hopeful that it's going to go through and he's at least out of Afghanistan. I think worst case, he'll, he'll be in a safer place wherever he ends up, but um, I'm hopeful that he'll end up in the States. So yeah, a couple of days ago, it was, it was pretty emotional hearing that he finally got out. Uh, so that's why I had to call you and, and postpone this. Love it, man. That's so Wishing all the best for Faradun. Is it just him or did he bring a family with him? Uh, it's just him. Yeah, he doesn't have a family. Cool. Well, I think, I feel like the hurdle of getting out of, getting out of Afghanistan right now is, is like 99% of the battle. I have a hard time believing that the United States is going to put people back on flights and send them back. Yeah. Yeah. I think worst case he would, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know where they would send them aside from the United States at this point. They can't just leave them in Qatar. 
that's not a good look. The U.S. has enough right. uh, enough <laughs> issues right now with this. Could you imagine a plane full of rejected SIV applicants going back into Kabul? Oh man, yeah, that would be that'd be bad. All right, well, knock on wood, we didn't just bring that into existence. But um, yeah, let's dive in here, man. I'm really excited. So I've I've been excited about each one of these, but the the last time we ended up. I ended up kind of running more of a timeline from the deployment. And I thought it was, I think it is valuable to keep things kind of in an order for um, any, anybody who's new or anybody who's listening, doesn't matter. Um, And I felt like it ended up being a little, a little dry at times, but this time it's pretty static in a sense. There's not a lot of moving parts. And I think we can get into kind of some of the weirder stuff on deployment. So we're looking at a stretch roughly September of 2010 to March, 2011. Yeah. yeah, That's about right. So September, 2010 kicked off with something known as operation dragon strike. It was a big, one of the larger, if not one of the largest uh, NATO operations in Afghanistan. Um, Not going to dive into the details here, but big push in Southern Afghanistan through Kandahar, through Maywand, I think maybe parts of Helmand even, part of the Argandab, tons of units involved. Uh, 2502 that John and I were part of both played a role. And by the end of Dragon Strike, end of September, we were all kind of established in these strong points all across Zari district. John was still a little further out west. I was kind of right in the middle in uh, outside of Housing Madad, a place called Strong Point Dog eventually strong point Zarkel. But I think for both of us, well, I joined your world at that point, got away from the big base and got to live on a little strong point for, I think, seven months. Is that about the same schedule you're thinking? Yeah. And uh, yeah, my timeline was just a little different because we, we started out there and then we, we went back to the main base briefly. And then we started a new, a new uh, outpost sort of within that, that time frame that that you uh, described. So we were kind of jumping all over the place. So to get down there, I don't want to brush by Dragon Strike too awful quick because it was a really big thing. Um, it's worth looking up. There's some documentaries and I don't know if there's any books per se, but there's enough on the internet that dives into it. Maybe that's something we'll do at another time. But like John and I each have like these little snippets of our part. As I, I love military history. So I'm able to look back on these conflicts and read like, what General Eisenhower was doing for D-Day, but a second lieutenant on the ground sees about as little as you could imagine in terms of the overall picture. So I don't know that right now either one of us could really dive into details, but for me, that was my first time definitely being shot at. There were plenty of times Housing Madad was mortared. There were, and it was bad. I mean, people died in those mortar attacks. It, It wasn't like the rockets at Kandahar. Uh, we had recoilless rifles shot at our towers, hit the building I was in. I was, you know, I don't know, eight feet, whatever. They were right above us. And, um, and then a lot of gunfire coming over Housie to where you could start to recognize what's that weird popping sound overhead. Um, but never actually shot at like Dragon Strike. So for me, that was my first introduction. And honestly, kind of weird because it was almost like a, when I look back on it, I wish I had like some awesome story, but I feel like I just zoned out because I was so, so nervous 
that like I wouldn't be able to function. That I just kind of kept doing fire support officer stuff, talking on the radio, knowing where the helicopters were. And um, yeah, I don't know. It's weird looking back on that. I feel like the first time in combat should be, should be more to it. Yeah, no, I feel a similar way because it's, it's kind of exhausting. And I think that yeah, your brain must sort of go into some sort of weird autopilot mode because you're, you're so focused all the time and you're so, you're always on because anything could happen at any moment uh, that it's, it's kind of exhausting. And, and I think the brain just sort of blocks out <laughs> some of the timeline of it. So it's, it, it gets hard to recall specifics sometimes. But no, I feel the same way. It was, it, it, there was a, a time stretch there where it was just, it was, uh, I don't want to say action packed, but there was a lot of stress and there was constant things to do and worry about and, uh, you know, request help for or get information on. And yeah, it was a, it was a busy time for us, Dragon Strike. I remember when, when our little piece kicked off hearing that it could be 30 days before we came back. So you just, I mean, we didn't carry 30 days worth of stuff, but you had a lot of stuff. It was a lot of weight you were carrying and we were walking the, this part of Afghanistan, the roads were just covered in IEDs. So you've got everything on your back. Um, and you always probably carry more than you should, especially early in the deployment, especially on a first deployment. I don't know, maybe everybody always carries more than they should, but we had way too much stuff. And somebody their brother, one of our lieutenants, their brother was in the special forces and had these stories of using mules. I don't know if I told you this, John. So we bought mules. I don't know, a couple, two, three, four, something like that. Thought this is perfect. And soldiers can rig stuff up out of anything, right? So somehow there was this pack we put on the mule. Nobody knew what they were doing at all. <laughs> and we started... And they strapped things onto the mule. He had 84 rockets <laughs> strapped on C4, water, everything. Um, and those mules were not interested in the least at going anywhere, at walking. And we got, you know, we had started getting shot at pretty early in the morning and the mules just would stop. Nobody could control them. And then the fear was like, these things are going to take off. <laughs> With all your stuff. <laughs> all of our ammo. I mean, not all the ammo, right? But I don't know, 50, 70 pounds worth of rockets and explosives. And they're just going to go. And some lucky Taliban is going to be like, look at this. So it didn't work at all. I don't remember what happened to those mules. I think we probably just like cut them loose. Um, but we did get a good picture out of it. Somebody got a picture of Sayer Payne walking down that road early that morning with, with uh, the guy right behind him. Baroa, I think was his name toting that mule along it's like one of the few stretches it actually walked <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it's a great idea in theory because you know there's there's some terrain you have to navigate you can't you can't even really get a four-wheeler through all the the stuff that that you need to walk through so you, you need an animal but yeah if they're not going to comply then it's a terrible idea well like nobody knew how to actually use mules nobody knew how to actually load mules and it's one of those things where i don't know how hard could it be and, it, and like our test run was the morning of dragon strike. Like there were bombs dropping in the background and they're, we're trying to figure out how to use mules for the first time. Like, and it was, it, it did more harm than good. 
because we got, you, you can't turn around. It's not like you go halfway on this patrol and say, I'll be back guys. I got to take this mule back. Like you're just stuck. And now we have, we have to start dropping the gear and eventually trucks came. We had to load the stuff up. So yeah, good, good start. <laughs> yeah, that is funny. And that kind of reminds me of a, a, a similar story where uh, I think we all kind of had this issue. So we, we were issued these um, fire retardant uniforms and uh, for whatever reason, the seams in the pants were not great. And, and as, as we wore them longer, uh, the, the, the seams wore out or, you know, we're constantly taking a knee while we're on patrol. So you're walking around, it, your pants might, you know, you're losing weight because you're, you know, very physically active. Your pants might be falling down a little more because there's a lot of stuff in your pockets. Um, and you're skinnier. And then when you take a knee, the crotch on your pants just rip. And when you're on a patrol, you're not going to change clothes. And also, most people in the military don't wear any any underwear so or at least in that in it like on a dirty nasty deployment yeah on a dirty nasty deployment uh when it's really hot out it's just easier not to worry about packing underwear or wearing it um so so you have multiple people just taking a knee ripping through their their pant crotches and just continuing on with life as if it's normal and you're just walking around with with your uh your junk just exposed <laughs> and i remember that happening quite often um but, but we just tried to kind of deal with it and then if we were engaging with any locals try to like hide them so it wasn't super offensive right because that you could start losing hearts and minds if if uh if, if you kneel in front of somebody's family right that's not going to be very beneficial to the cause yeah. but it's kind of hard to avoid southern afghanistan the rural part of Kandahar, very conservative, very religiously conservative. That's where the Taliban started. Like that's yeah. the birthplace of the Taliban. So yeah, you're right. Hearts and minds. I, so anybody that's in the military knows those patches that come with every pair of pants. They're like five inches by three inches. I've never used one of those. You're supposed to be able to like iron them on or something. Like, no, 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 no. no. When that <laughs> hole starts, it goes from like, there wasn't a hole to it's down to your knee and, five steps like ah. right <laughs> there's there's nothing you can really do about it i remember at one point i think the battalion commander put out a note that you either wore underwear or you carried a second pair of pants do you remember right. that yeah yeah i mean I, I know i started just wearing underwear um which is frustrating because it's you know you, you kind of get used to not not wearing it and it feels good but um as the person that was primarily engaging with locals, I needed to have a backup option. <laughs> I couldn't walk into some meeting with a village elder like that. They tore so much. <laughs> yeah. we, we got to our little strong point area that ended up being strong point dog, September, late September. I don't know. We were out there for a couple of days moving down into this area and it was an old building. It was a cool building. I've got, a bunch of pictures from the inside because we ended up living there for like six seven months something like that and um 
they had the banisters for like a patio kind of were made out of old artillery shells. So kind of a unique spot, but all of these homes were abandoned. It's like, we weren't fighting in a populated area because of previous fighting. The inhabitants hadn't been there for, I mean, I don't know how long it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't like they left the night before this place had been abandoned for a while, you know? And, um, which is one of the, it's one of those mixed bags, I guess. Was it, were they abandoned because it was so kinetic or was it kinetic because they were abandoned and they could fire up anywhere. Right. But right. anyways, we, we took the strong point over, they, they blew a, a hole through the wall. So the guys could clear it to begin with. And then eventually, uh, used the front gates, great big metal gates. Afghan houses are like compounds, fortresses. I mean, they really are. Yeah. And we lived there for, again, however many months, but it was probably like at least a month in where we were paying some locals to clear brush away from around the compound just so we could see better. And one of them pulled up a wire, said, found a wire, you know, whatever. Interpreters went over there and it was wired next to a battery that was sitting on the ground. Thank you for telling us. So the (laughs) Afghan army, they need to start pulling this thing up. It goes right to the door. It was a Italian anti-tank mine about the size of a medium pizza. Oh my God. (laughs) White or light tan is what I remember. And the thing was at the door. We were parking Humvees in front of that door to keep it from... uh, (laughs) Oh no. It was plastic. So the metal detectors didn't get it. I guess the dogs didn't get it because we swept that thing. Who knows how many times? At least a month living there of guys walking over this thing every day. Yeah. And the battery is just right next to it. Yep. Wow. You guys got so lucky. <laughs> it's crazy. Like, but, but those things were everywhere, right? Like that's the they one were. that we found that didn't go off. But the reality is, yeah. Yeah. They were everywhere. And, and that was, that was the worst part of that area was uh, every time you step foot somewhere outside the wire, it, it could be your last literally. Um which which makes it makes it very tense when you're just walking around and, and then you know you you have a couple of run-ins or a couple of close calls or you know we had a guy that we, we hit a dismounted ied he flies into the air yeah, i was a couple of people behind him you know we fortunately no other ieds went off there was no one it, it was not an ambush so that we weren't like immediately under fire um, and what we discovered after investigating a little bit was that, you know, the whole, the whole IED did not go off. It was just like the top charge. And then it was just the explosion. That's why the guy got launched, but there was no shrapnel. So no one got killed, uh, just kind of some minor injuries, uh, concussion type stuff. Um, yeah, you have some close calls like that and, uh, you realize how critical, where you're walking is and how much the element of luck comes into it that's the big thing i took away yeah it, yeah i'm not a, a superstitious person but i i became one <laughs> I, I wore the same pair of boots every patrol i had like this essentially a good luck charm bag in my breast pocket that i always had with me uh, on every patrol every time we went outside the wire i'm like i'm carrying this stuff or else you know i'm not going and uh, I remember those those old boots that were my lucky boots were just so disgusting and they were not in good shape. But I, I never strayed from wearing them just because of that reason. I was just superstitious. And once something is going well for you, you're just not going to change. 
So I, um, I just did a video a little while ago about my pocket items. I'll send it to you when we get off here. Yeah. Same thing. It was in there for, for both deployments. Um, it's pretty nasty now because it, it was in a Ziploc bag, but somehow it's still covered in Afghan moon dust. Uh, right. But yeah, I'll send, I'll send you that video, man. I, um, I got a lot of, a lot of funny thoughts about strong point life, but the, that element of luck, I think, uh, messes with people just realizing, like, I remember thinking before, probably while we were at West Point, even you hear about IEDs and I would think now it would have been before West Point. Cause I, yeah, it would have been before West Point. You'd hear about IEDs and I think, well, just don't go near them. Like, don't. That sounds like something you should avoid. And then, of course, finding out how incredibly complex they can be. But the thing in southern Afghanistan was more of like a quantity over quality. So they were everywhere, like everywhere, everywhere. But a lot of them wouldn't go off or they wouldn't be wired or they'd be waterlogged. Um, Not 50% of them, but there were, I mean, our little area was like three by four kilometers easily over 200 IEDs, easily. Like yeah. I think 200 that we found or were brought in and we didn't go like, yeah, just a little bit everywhere. And yeah, you go ahead. Oh, I was going to, you know, we had a guy, I mean, some of them did work. So I guess the, uh, the horrible part is that when they do work and it's a dismounted ID and if they have enough explosives there, then uh, the person can like disappear. Um, and we had our first killed in action was, was that scenario. And I remember I was, I was at like a, in a compound that we had just taken over the day prior, uh, which is there we should get into that that's an interesting scenario just generally like we we essentially walk into a compound with family and like livestock and we say hey we're taking this over you need to leave um and and they comply they're not only happy about it but they they comply and then we take over their little living space temporarily um and then when we're gone they they take it back um so i was in this compound and uh, another platoon of ours was uh, doing a patrol. And as the fire support officer, I was still the fire support officer at the time, because later in the deployment, I became a platoon leader. Um, I was just kind of monitoring the radios, kind of uh, keeping track of where they were. And then they, uh, we hear an explosion because we're not too far from where they are. We hear an explosion. I you know, we call them to try to figure out what's going on. And then, you know, the fog of war sets in. They're not communicating very well with the company. Um, so I was pretty good with the radio. So I, I jump on their platoon radio because um, I wasn't too far to, to catch them. And, and I'm, certain, I'm listening to the traffic. And uh, the, uh, the, the best friend of the guy that got killed his name was Jack. He, he, he's on, he's on the radio and he finally says, yeah, yeah, land is dead. 
and I'm like, oh, oh my, uh, you know, can you confirm what I just think yeah, I heard is that land is KIA. And he, uh, yeah, yeah, when he confirmed it, you know, there was like, up to that point, there was a lot of confusion because they couldn't find him. He was, they knew that there was an explosion, obviously, and they knew that he was in that vicinity, but they, they, there was nothing to be found. And then I think what they found was like a piece of his weapon. And uh, unfortunately, it was his best friend that found it. And, you know, hearing that, you know, then I'm the one that communicates it to the rest of the company on site. And it was our first killed in action. And it was really, uh, you know, th that moment was just, I don't know ingrained in me because you know everything slows down and, and and you just start remembering every little detail of what was happening and uh i don't know that was that was kind of hard for all of us to kind of take and i, yeah, I remember being i guess very kind of Kind of put a new perspective on what we were doing that night and kind of from that that point on it was you know let's just get home kind of was the was the mindset after then uh brett land right brett land yep yeah. i just looking it up it, i remembered more about that for some reason it was the day after my birthday i remember Cause I think we had a couple days there. Like I can, I can mark that in my mind for other reasons. And I, I remember hearing about that. I, that's a part. I think most people know that when people die in combat, it's not always like a movie where the, the body just, okay, pick them up and move them. And I'm not going to get into the details cause it's a little bit much, but, and it's secondhand, I wasn't the one doing this, but there was a suicide attack later in, uh, in DWAR. It was in December of 2000. Was it? Yeah. DWAR it, was Sangs it wasn't DWAR. It was, it was the one. Before, it was the one before that renegade company had two suicide attacks. Okay. Um, got it. Yeah. And we had a platoon that was attached to renegade company for this air assault. And the, the suicide bomber killed, um, well, may as well look this up. Right. Staff Sergeant Riva Denera, I remember that. I want to say Carol. Um, yeah, let me make sure I get this right. Jacob Carver, Specialist Jacob Carroll, and Staff Sergeant Juan Riva Denera. Um, suicide bomber detonated while they were in the open and, and killed the three of them. Our platoon was there. One of our platoons was down there. And it's one of those decisions where I understand well, nobody wants to do it. They cleaned up. Our guys cleaned up. And it's, to your point, John, it's not just that there's not a, I mean, sometimes there's not even a body. Other times um, it's parts. And those guys, when they came back from that, these were people that they didn't know or, or didn't know well, we're in the same battalion, that messed a couple guys up. Um, it's pretty grotesque stuff because you don't just leave a part there. You do whatever you can to bring it all back. And then uh, 
how do you get it back? You put it in the truck um, or it's on your lap uh, in, in, in body bags, in, in trash bags, whatever you, you can. But um, guys put that in the truck next to them and it sat there for two hours as they came back to base, right? Like that, that's some heavy stuff. Yeah. And that, that kind of stuff will, will change you and, and it can throw you into kind of a immediate, uh, I don't know, panic mode. Some people just, just are not able to handle it. Um, yeah. We had a guy after, I, I think he was, he was in the MWR, the, uh, like the phone room. We had a, you know, at our outpost terminator, we had a little plywood shack with four phones in it that we could call home. And I think he was on the phone uh, with his family. And then we took a request raffle round right outside of the MWR where he was. And I think that combination of like talking to his family and being attacked at the same time or around the same time it just kind of, it, it sparked something in, in him and he just, he kind of lost it to a certain extent. And uh, he wasn't able to be in a combat role anymore. We, we kind of had to bring him back from the front line. And, and this, he was a experienced NCO. He had been on deployments in Iraq. Uh, he, it wasn't his first time in combat, but sometimes for people, it'll just kind of throw him off. Uh, so yeah, to that point, it, it, it you kind of never know what's going to really impact a soldier. And I think that's kind of the stuff that stays with people um, to where it's not even that you, you know, whatever the cliche PTSD stuff is, you saw your best friend die or whatever it might be. You shot somebody in your whatever. I don't know what the cliche would be the thing. Right. But um, there's these other weird aspects to it where that amount of stress with the luck piece of this, um, the, the two incidents we just described weren't lazy soldiers who weren't doing their job or weren't paying attention. Like they were doing their job. That's the point. And they were, they had been doing their job and and they were proficient and, uh, this stuff still happens. I think it, while you're there at least can manifest in, in weird ways. We had guys with pretty, pretty sick senses of humor at times um, to try to bring it back to some different stories. It's hard to transition from, from some of that sad stuff about losses, but um, I do want to hit all parts as best we can. You know, um, somebody got a package that had magazines in it and there were Justin Bieber, teen girl, bot magazines. I don't know what the heck's called, but like, you know, the magazines where it's just like, it was all pictures of Justin Bieber or something, right? Sure. It's all pink and yellow and purple and stuff. Yeah. Back in 2010. Yeah. yeah Most magazines, I think, were probably that way. Different Justin Bieber in 2010, I think. But yeah, um, it was meant for teenage girls, 100%. I don't know if somebody asked for it or if it was just in some, I have no idea. But needless to say, somebody in our platoon, I think it was Corporal Hoffman, had a full magazine of Justin Bieber pictures. And something happened where guys thought it would be funny to take one of those pictures and shove it in somebody's kit at random times and not tell them until they came back from a patrol. So um, <laughs> here's the sick part of that for pretty much. 
if somebody were to be killed or seriously wounded, their family would get their stuff. So their family would get their stuff and tucked away right next to the soldier's heart <laughs> is a folded up picture of like shirtless Justin Bieber. <laughs> oh man. Fortunately, that's funny. <laughs> that never that happened. A, yeah, that is a cruel, hilarious joke. I, I have in my mind they'd say like you like you've been Bieber or whatever, you know, something stupid like that. Once we're back and uh there's too many spots. It's a piece of paper. There's so many spots you could shove a piece of, and they didn't do anything stupid, like put it in a magazine or something. It'd be like up against your body armor. Right. Um, right. Or, you know, something like that, but yeah. Yeah. And that would cause probably some confusion to the family. Uh, hopefully it would end up being a good laugh with the soldiers that did it, but that, uh, yeah, I'm not sure if, if that's borderline appropriate at best. Yeah. I don't know that the reason for doing it was that, like, I hope their family sees this. I don't think that was the reason. Um, that's what made it so risky, I'd say. Right. And like why everybody was so nervous about it. Like if I found out a soldier put a picture of Justin Bieber in my pocket and I walked around for a camel for a day, I'd say, oh, you got me. Um, but this was like, check your gear once or twice before you go. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to be stuck with that. So you guys had internet out at that strong point pretty early? Yeah, because, so we were still at Terminator when, when Dragon oh, yeah. kicked off, we were still at Terminator, um, which was an established strong point. So it had internet. Um, so yeah, th- that's what I was referring to there. Yeah. And, and we were, as the fighting season kind of was ramping up, we took a lot of recoilless rifle. And it was interesting because, you know, I was the fire support officer. Uh, so when we took a recoilless rifle around, that was the kind of my time to shine. I had to go do the crater analysis and determine where it came from. And uh, we were fortunate enough that none of the, the rounds hit anybody, which is kind of amazing because we, we had something like 20 rounds in a matter of, I don't know, two weeks uh, that hit like inside the base or just outside the base. And it was a small little triangle base, uh, but no one was killed or even wounded from all those rounds. Um, but I was able to like do the analysis and, and backtrack to like a, the, you know, the coordinates where all these rounds are coming from. Uh, so it was, it was, it was cool to, uh, you know, put all my training to use in that sense. Cause uh, you know, I think a lot of artillery guys don't get a chance to do crater analysis yeah. in, in real life. Um, that was fun. It was always, we always felt like we were private investigators. Um, me and my fire support uh, NCO, Sergeant Martinez, we would get to a analysis site and we would like make sure everyone stayed away. And then we would bring out all, all our little tools and use our compass and, you know, it was always an interesting scenario because you never, you know, no two creators were the same. Um, yeah, that was, that was fun. It, and then I, I wanted to mention the, another kind of weird thing that you never think of, but uh, you mentioned before coordinating with like aircraft as they're flying around the, the battle space and stuff. Uh, that was kind of a big part of our job. And I would always have them 
take pictures, you know, because we didn't have the best uh, overhead uh, imagery at the time. So I would have the Kiowa pilots take pictures of uh, the, the compounds that we were interested in. And the way they would do that, you know, you'd think this is the U.S. military. They have some fancy optics on their helicopters. They just have a picture and like magically it, it appears on my computer. That, that was not the case. They would, these Kiowas are, are old helicopters that are, were not updated. So the pilots would just take a digital camera and like reach out and snap a picture of whatever I asked them to snap a picture of. Then they would land <laughs> they would land in our little outpost. I would run out there with my little laptop and I would, I would take the SD card out of their camera, plug it into my laptop, download the pictures real quick, give them the SD card back and then like wave, wave goodbye as, <laughs> as they flew off. It was, it was such a weird transaction, but you know, at the time with where technology was and what our limitations were as far as what we could, you know, use with these military computers, uh, that's what we had to do. It seems so odd. Yeah, it's like all really high tech, but there's this little gap. And yeah, that little exactly. gap really, really, really matters. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So on the point of, uh, my mind's gone to like 17 different stories I want to get into, but every time you say something, I'm like, yes, it's, it's remembering things. Um, right. We... We we took one bad recoilless round when we were at housing, and it was at night randomly. They never the Taliban rarely tended to attack at night. They really had we really had an advantage at night, so they just didn't fight a lot at night. Um, but it was one evening we were in the command post and we had a tower on top, so just an old concrete building, and that was the one that got hit the most. And we had a supply sergeant who'd been wounded in Iraq. And had to reclass. I, I think he was an engineer, got blown up in an ID, had to reclass and become a supply sergeant. So he could stay in the military, but he couldn't be combat arms or couldn't be around combat anymore. And he's a supply sergeant for an infantry company. So I don't know, but he was never on guard duty. He always had other things to do. And this night we were like, God, just fill in for an hour or whatever it is. That night they took a recoilless round right in the tower. And it was one of those where he might've had a busted eardrum, maybe a concussion, but like, how did that not do anything? And he came down once like the stress had lowered a little bit. He came down screaming, like laughing, but angry. Like I'm never doing that again. I'm not supposed to, you know, all this stuff, but um, that while we were there, that base took a lot of mortars. And I remember being in the port of John's one night um, you know, getting rid of maybe the dinner the night before and you hear the first mortar hit. That's not a safe place to be. Oh, no. And you're very right. vulnerable. A knife through butter and that stuff. And it's like, right. I just remember the thought of, well, it's two things. First, I told myself, that's outgoing. That's probably our guy's shooter. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm good. <laughs> the sound... The sound can be very familiar, very similar. An outgoing, it takes a lot of, in my opinion, it takes a lot of experience to know the difference between an outgoing mortar round that we're shooting and one that just landed 50 meters away or 100 meters away, whatever it is. So if you were sleeping or if you were in the Port of John, 
you're going to tell yourself that it's outgoing. And it was one of those where it was like, we'd been mortared every night around dinner time. It was right around dinner time. I was the fire support officer. They're probably not shooting mortars in the five minutes that I'm gone without me having any idea about it. Um, yeah. Like you, you get up and run. Do you, you try to finish? What's the move there? So <laughs> just added discomfort, I guess, but yeah. Yeah. It's those things that, that you don't think about. It's not, you know, we still have to live, you know, so you, you sometimes find yourself in a less than ideal scenario when, when an attack happens, but, but yeah. now you mentioned recoil rifle rounds and um, that, that's what I was nearly, nearly killed by. It was, it was kind of a funny story. Um, so we, we had a, a forward observer in FO um, on his first mission. He just arrived in Afghanistan. And uh, I was like, yeah, you should go on this patrol that's happening today. Come with me. It'll be, it'll be good to get some experience. His name was Private uh, Meacham. Meekum. And uh, he was he was a hard charging, like go get him kind of guy. So he was all excited about it. And we get out there and, and we're on patrol and um, we're talking to local nationals. And I think I brought I brought a Turk with me aside from the uh, the main objective of the patrol. Um, and I was like, I remember, you know, I was all in on like the mission and and I was talking to I would I was intercepting some locals and saying like hey have you heard about the elections coming up we're, we're <laughs> there's elections that we're trying to you know explain democracy to these people through an interpreter and then in hopes that they would go participate in their new democracy that we're establishing and uh i was talking to a guy and then we we come into our attack the patrol uh, so, so we moved to this like berm and, and suddenly a recoilless ref around hits right between me and, and Nikum. And we were both kind of in the prone and it lands right between us. You know, it's a big explosion. Everything goes white. <clears throat> I finally kind of come to, and I'm first thing I'm thinking is like, okay, my legs are probably gone. So let's, let's look down and see if, see if I still have legs oh my goodness, they're still there. This is amazing. Uh, but then I hear, <laughs> I hear out of the, uh, out of my, my ear, that's like finally stopped ringing. I hear, sir, I'm hit, sir, I'm hit. And I look over at Meekum and he was hit, but it was just like a, he took some shrapnel, just like a little scratch across his shoulder. And it was a little bit of blood going through. So it, it, it was, it was so surreal because it felt like a weird, like a world war ii scene almost you know like in a movie but it was you know realistically speaking he had a scratch that was kind of bleeding through his uniform and and we we're other than that we were both like totally fine um you know aside from like uh ruptured eardrums and stuff um so yeah i remember like trying to come to and i'm like i i, I pull a leatherman multi-tool out of my pocket and i'm trying to like rip his sleeve off to like make sure that it's not that bad um it, and it wasn't you know and then we the patrol continued and and you know we we made it back to the base and everything was fine but 
yeah, those reclose ref rounds. So just to kind of get back to what you're saying about it, it's amazing that, that, that your guy in the tower didn't get hurt by that. We were fortunate that that's what the Taliban was using at the time because they're anti-tank rounds that detonate on like a delayed fuse. So they would impact the ground typically penetrate and then detonate so any shrapnel was like stuck in the dirt and they're made to hit a tank and then go through the armor and then explode and kill everyone inside um so for us when they hit the dirt right next to us or underneath us in a tower or something it's you have a decent chance of surviving so we were we were lucky that the taliban were just using whatever they had and what they had was these junk russian or chinese close rifles that that had rounds that were were not really going to hurt americans unless they hit us directly you know there were so many weapons in that country yeah the things people would bring forward um we started the, it got a little slower up until october november there were still like daily firefights but by the winter months a lot of the taliban went home um or i should i should clarify when the when the foliage leaves in the winter, it exposes a lot of the areas that the Taliban fight from. So they stop fighting for the most part. And we would go weeks without direct fire contact when it was before that multiple times a day. IEDs were still there. It's not like those freeze or anything. But we started paying locals to do a couple things. One, bring us IEDs, bring us weapons, bring us anything, right? They brought a shocking amount of stuff. And just in a backpack, right? 40 pound IED in a backpack, still attached to the battery and all that stuff in a backpack and just swing it off and hand it to you and heart attack. But um, we started paying guys to cut down trees around the strong point, give us better fields of fire, um, open up some visibility. And we had uh, two guys that Afghanistan has been at war for so long. There's wounded people, wounded civilians all over the country. We had one guy who was missing an arm. Hard for him to chop down a tree, one arm. But his buddy was missing a leg, had two arms. And they, if I remember right, even came together, like somehow managed to get there together. And the guy with two legs would prop up the dude with two arms, and the dude with two arms would swing the axe and chop down trees. And we paid him both. Wow. Did you pay him as one person or as two people? I, you know, one and a half. <laughs> one and a half no i don't think they i think that was i don't know how it was like five bucks a day right but um yeah it was good work a good a good wage for that area and uh yeah yeah i remember doing some of the tree cutting operations but we must have been more lucky than you guys because we had chainsaws what and uh yeah <laughs> yeah and, and it felt a little strange but yeah there'd be a, a group of you know afghan uh males ages you know 18 to to 40 there to work and we just handed out a bunch of chainsaws and said hey go cut these trees down or here's how you run the thing go cut these trees down and you know we were watching them and supervising them but uh yeah i would guess that if they ever spoke the villagers that had the chainsaws were probably much much happier that they had that as opposed to using axes to, to chop down those trees 
It's probably where our guys all went, right? They came and right. checked out our operation for a day. Went, Screw this. Yeah, I remember you, you guys had the largest numbers of, of the employed locals, which was like a metric that we were always competing for. <laughs> and uh, my, this is when I was a platoon leader. Um, I, had, I had an outpost and I, I felt competitive about it. So I was trying to get more locals. And I was always second place to you guys. Uh, you, yeah. you would have like 80 and I would have 30 employed people every day or something to that effect. Like, and then everyone, all the other areas had five or something, which might've been that our, our areas were the safest or who knows why, but um, yeah, that was a weird thing that I was felt competitive about. But then you mentioned like paying for IEDs and stuff. That was always so strange and fun to me because we would have like a, we would have an amount of cash uh, of Afghan currency with, that the intent was to to give out to the locals for for various reasons. So one reason was their labor that we would kind of have work for them to do, and then another reason was for information or actual like IEDs. And I remember getting the opportunity to determine like how much a black market mortar would be worth and how much I should pay for this stuff. And I remember trying to get guidance and I was like Googling what they might pay for it, you know, (laughs) black market prices, (laughs) black market prices for Chinese mortars. (laughs) Um, But but I kind of came up with a decent uh, formula for it. And um, I was, I was probably paying just a little high because I was wanting to get the information and wanting to get, the stuff off the battlefield you know and and it worked people would start once you, once they start knowing they can make money they're they're bringing ieds they're bringing they're telling us where caches are um and it yeah that was a pretty good program but it felt kind of weird sometimes oh, yeah. we we were paying for property damage because to be fair we damaged a lot of property in the fight down there and there's not like there's very clear ownership in the United States, all things considered. Like you can find out who owns, if, if there's damage to a property, you can find out definitively who owns that. Not so in Afghanistan. We absolutely were paying like four people who claimed the same house. Like I, oh yeah. How, I have no idea. What can you show me? Like, well, I don't even remember what we asked for evidence, but it'd be like a handwritten note. Yeah. Yeah. You'd ask for some sort of, yeah, like, like a mortgage document, but. Yeah, they would just make it up or say, oh, it, it was destroyed when you destroyed the house, obviously. Yes. <laughs> so there'd be multiple people asking for money, claiming that they own this land that we bombed or, or whatnot. Yeah, and, and here we are with, with a bunch of money to give out, trying to determine if we should give it out to anybody. Yeah, that was a weird situation. And it's not like you have a map and you look at this map and say, and you live at 123 Main Street. And they say, no, 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 124. Right. They would say like, I live in the house by the valley across from the small tree. You're like, I don't know. That's... Can you point to it on a map? Well, they've never seen their house on a map before. They've never seen aerial footage of their, like, right. and, and, and they would call it a town that we, that's not on our maps. But then you ask somebody else where that town was and they'd point out by you, Wags. Somewhere else. I can't yeah. you're talking about, right? So we didn't know what they were talking about or where they were talking about it. They got paid. Some people probably made some good money doing that. Yeah, they probably did. Yeah, we have, I mean, and you kind of wonder 
why there might be corruption. But yeah, I'm sure we played a part because we were just handing out money uh, for reparations of damages that we incurred and with no no way to verify who we're paying or who actually owned the property. We had in one of those winter months, February maybe, we had a kid start showing up telling us stuff. And he at one point said, I know where some IEDs are, mines or whatever it was. And you got to be nervous with that stuff, right? Like, It'd be because, a threat. Yeah, it's not a matter of here on a map, same thing. Kid can't point it out on a map. I'll show you. And I'll show you how to get there, by the way. Right. But he promised, like, it's a lot. It's a lot, a lot. I don't know if I told you about this in Wags. It was a lot, a lot, a lot. 500-gallon water drums. You know what I'm talking about? About those size. Big okay. blue Jeez. with yep. where you screw the cap on in the middle kind of thing. Yeah. One, one of those was buried in the ground. Full of IEDs. Pressure plates, 155 rounds, jugs of HME. You couldn't see the bottom. Um, when EOD called it up, I can't remember, they made up some number. Because you know they'd always have to say, like, we're going to blow this thing in place, 30-pound IED. They said, I mean, well over 1,000 pounds. Um, over 100 IEDs, probably. The kid referred to it as, like, the Taliban would build them all year place them so when they came back in the springtime they just had an inventory to go to wow we didn't have enough c4 to blow the whole thing so they just had to lay some on the top and like let's see what happens cave it in on itself but wow yeah i didn't know about that that you probably that kid and that relationship you guys had saved multiple lives that that's huge we had a similar one but it wasn't as direct because i think they were like oh they're paying for explosives well i have something that could be considered explosives but it's kind of not useful to anybody and and they they led us to something similar it was a huge stockpile like underneath buried somewhere fairly close to our our outpost and it was it was like these enormous 10 foot long like missile things from probably when the Russians were in town. I mean, there were, there were enormous like anti-aircraft missiles. Um, so I don't think that they were ever gonna be used. I mean, maybe they could have been buried alongside an IED just to produce a bunch of shrapnel or something. So um, I'm still glad we got rid of it, but I think, I think it was just kind of like the, the guy heard about this thing and the Taliban might not even, might not have known about it. It wasn't like, they were pre-made IEDs, like what you're talking about. And he's like, hey, let's make a bunch of money for this. So, so we paid them and kind of like we were saying, when EOD showed up, they were, you know, used all the C4 they had. It was an enormous explosion. It blew out the windows of the, the village that it was close to, you know. But uh, we were glad to get it off the, uh, the battlefield. We had an uh, engagement at a place called Spin Pier. Pretty soon after we got to, we, our company did. Um, I wasn't on the ground. I was back at housing. And I remember there was a, a, a bomb drop, 500 pound bomb, and it didn't detonate. Like I remember being on the radio for the full thing and it's, you know, weapons away, five seconds of impact. And you're sitting there like, what? And it didn't go off. So a dud, I guess. I remember the general vicinity it was. It was in some of these ditches that we really tried to avoid. And 
and some grape rose. I always wondered about that. That 500 pound bomb, just like it didn't disintegrate. I, I, yeah. I don't know what a bomb looks like after hitting the ground from 10,000 plus feet. But like, I just kind of had in my mind one night we'd see some guys out there with a wheelbarrow, you know, like that could be useful. Yeah. Yeah. And they're kind of all over the place out there. We had, uh, we were on a patrol in like, I'll call it the Northwest quadrant of my area. And then in the Western quadrant, we heard like a little, a little pop and like I saw a little puff of smoke. Didn't think much of it, uh, but it was kind of in an area that we had walked through on that same patrol. Uh, And we get back to the base and there's all this commotion and there's like a bunch of locals that, that needed help. They, they were farmers that I think they, they found like a piece of metal in the ground and they just start whacking it with shovels. Kind of like, like you're saying, like something was there. They're just like, what, what is this? I'm just going to dig it up. And they must've hit the fuse or the something on it. And it, it triggered a explosion. I don't think the whole thing went off, but that little explosion, like there, I think there were enough people around it that a bunch of people got really hurt uh it must have produced a decent amount of shrapnel and yeah it was it was fairly gruesome so yeah sorry to bring it back to like a a low point but it it, it was crazy because they don't have hospitals there so they they drove in they knew that we were friendly that they were friendly like they were just farmers uh that somehow got mixed up in this and either the taliban planted an id that that they that these people hit or it was like an old bomb from who knows when but uh they bring they just have a pickup truck pull into our area and there's just like bodies in the back of it they're all alive so we we bring them into in to our area our medic we have one medic on site and he's trying to treat all these people doing a great job um because a couple of them were kids you know and and that's that's kind of hard to see like kids in really rough shape um yeah, I remember one of them was was obviously not alive. Uh, so me and another guy just like brought him to the uh, to the helicopter landing zone, the, the HLZ, just to separate him from the rest of the folks that were alive, uh, because we couldn't declare him dead on site. We had, we still had to get him on a Blackhawk um, to, to be to be medevaced, and then the hospital would would declare them dead. So yeah. It, kind of an interesting thing like how that would happen you know when locals locals are hurt we would treat them in, in a lot of cases uh so we and that's why they brought them to us because they knew that we could take them we could fly them to a hospital um, and would and would. yeah and we would yeah and we would have like one family member go with them so they would yeah yeah we did that we treated like I mean, that case it was four locals and the one that that was already dead um and then yeah, a family member went with them. Yeah, it was it was a weird situation because it wasn't even a big explosion, but it was like an old bomb or an IED or something that that they were just hitting with a shovel, and then a bunch of people were affected. I I feel like if you live in Afghanistan, southern Afghanistan, you can't hit things with a shovel. Right, <laughs> like that's a piece of metal in the ground. Don't go near it. There's so many explosives, like. Yeah, 
so you remember at housing, we had that, that blimp that would look at everything, right? Mm-hmm. For a while, I don't know how long the military did this. They put these blimps up that would do two things. They could see all over the place, like a crazy far distance. They'd also get shot at all the time. So you couldn't really drop this blimp with small arms fire, but it made for a tempting target, I guess. So um, right. I don't know, draw out the enemy a little bit. Um, anyways, I remember one night they spotted guys in place in an IED, putting one in the ground and it went off and they put that dude in a truck and the blimp watched as they drove him to our gate. And so oh this God. poor farmer stepped on an IED. Oh my God. Like, nah. <laughs> <laughs> nah, that's not what oh, happened, man. is it? And, uh, they treated him. Same thing. Flew him to flew him to hospital, but he was he was under guard and had a hand and was handcuffed, I believe. Like like you would see it. He was handcuffed to the or zip tied. Yeah. I think it probably was to the to something in there because he wasn't. I think he lost an arm or lost something. You know, part of an arm. It was like same thing. If they weren't watching him with the blimp, he just say, "And hey, it was an accident." And that's that's the person that's trying to kill Americans. Then he goes and to the American base and you keep him alive and treat him and then, then fly he and his family maybe to a hospital. It's complicated. Yeah. That is the, the nature of the beast there. It's, uh, you never know who the enemy is and they don't tell you. And you, you very well could be talking to the enemy, treating them, helping them out. And then they try to kill you at night. Yeah. It's like my situation. Like I said, we walked through that area. So they were, they very well could have been putting that IED in there because they saw us walk through. And then that's kind of one of their tactics is they'll put an ID where you were in case you go the same way back, which sometimes happens. Uh, then you'll hit it. And, you know, that might've been the case, but at the time I remember thinking that it couldn't have been, uh, I mean, there were kids. So I, I hope that they weren't, you know, kids that were hired to put that ID in, but, but you never know. Yeah. It's a lot there. Well, we're just hitting the hour mark here. So um, I think there's a couple more things I want to get into for sure. We haven't talked about handing off with the 10th mountain division. I don't, I don't think you and I have talked about that at all, but I have a lot of like, it's an interesting period. And then we, I guess, kind of a teaser for the next episode, our battalion got tasked to do air assaults all across Southern Afghanistan for, two months so essentially they'd find these hot spots and we'd go there for a two or three days usually mm-hmm. like two days i think all of them are two days um it kind of felt like we had to earn our way out of that deployment in a weird way but that is a rabbit hole so probably hold before we get into it what do you think yeah yeah and even before that I mean, we were doing air assaults uh before we before we changed our mission towards the end there so there's there's even some some other aerosol missions to talk through and yeah there's a there's a lot there it's weird it's almost like we couldn't cover a full year and in a couple hours but right just give us more for next time well cool man john thanks for for doing this and good news about fair dude that's awesome yeah so excited for him and we'll uh yeah we'll talk again soon man yeah. We'll see ya. See ya. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. 
If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.